The story had held us, round the fire, sufficiently breathless, but except the obvious remark that it was gruesome, as, on Christmas Eve in an old house, a strange tale should essentially be. I remember no comment uttered till somebody happened to say that it was the only case he had met in which such a visitation had fallen on a child. The case, I may mention, was that of an apparition in just such an old house as had gathered us for the occasion. An appearance of a dreadful kind, to a little boy sleeping in the room with his mother and waking her up in the terror of it, waking her not to dissipate his dread and soothe him to sleep again, but to encounter also herself before she had succeeded in doing so, the same sight that had shaken him. Welcome back to another episode of Book Blurbs, everyone. Author and the king of horror himself, Stephen King, called this episode's book one of the, quote, only two great novels of the supernatural in the last hundred years. And that's alongside Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, which has already been featured on this podcast, shameless plug. King said both contain, quote, Secrets best left untold and things best left unsaid. The book's own author was even scared by it. Quote, I had to correct the proofs of my ghost story last night, and when I had finished them, I was so frightened that I was afraid to go upstairs to bed, he said. It became the source of inspiration for countless adaptations following its publication in 1898, and forever changed the landscape of the horror genre and ghost stories, especially when it comes to including children as characters in the story. Prepare yourself as we dive into The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Henry James, considered by many to be a key transitional figure between literary realism and literary modernism, was a transatlantic writer. Because he was an American-born British author, he appears in both American and British literature canon. James was born on April 15, 1843, to Mary Walsh and Henry James Sr. He was one of four boys, with his oldest brother being William James, one of the most influential philosophers of the United States, and the father of American psychology. He also had a sister, Alice James, who is best known for her published diaries. James attended Harvard Law School, but he realized he had more of an interest in literature. He largely relocated to Europe, traveling to places like France and Italy, before ultimately becoming a British citizen in 1915 just a year before his death in 1916. James's works constantly juxtaposed characters from the Old World, or Europe, and from the New World, or the United States. James's writing is traditionally divided into three periods. James virtually disowned his first novel called Watch and Ward, which was published in 1871 as a serial in the Atlantic Monthly, and considered Roderick Hudson, published in 1875, 
as a serial in the Atlantic Monthly also to be his first novel. That novel is about a sculptor, and it's kind of like a coming-of-age story of the sculptor. Scholars typically point to the portrait of a lady as the conclusion of the first period of James's writing. This work of fiction, often described as a psychological novel, is considered to be one of his masterpieces for the way James explores the mind of his characters. The second period of James's career includes less popular novels, plays, and the subject of this episode of the podcast, The Turn of the Screw. The third period of James's writing encompasses three significant novels, The Wings of the Dove from 1902, The Ambassadors from 1903, and The Golden Bowl from 1904. Now that's just an extremely brief introduction to Henry James for you. I haven't read any of his novels, but if you have and would recommend them, please let me know by reaching out to the podcast, and maybe I'll check them out. Now let's focus in on how his novella, The Turn of the Screw, came about. The main reason Henry James wrote The Turn of the Screw was he needed money. His earnings from his early novels were beginning to dry up, and his pivot to playwriting was largely a failure. Although he was able to redeem some of that hard work for the stage by converting it to fiction novels later on. Collier's Weekly offered James a contract to write a 12-part ghost story. The publication paid James $900, equivalent to roughly $27,659 in terms of 2019 uh, dollar amounts for the serial serial rights to the story. And consider this, just a year earlier, a literary magazine paid James only 150 for one of his novels. That's equivalent to only $4,610 in uh, 2019 terms. You know, compare that to what he was offered for the turn of the screw again. Uh, let's take 2019 terms. So $4,610 for a novel, a novel length work, a book. And for the turn of the screw, this short novella, this ghost story, he was offered over 27,000 compared to just over 4,000. Incredible. So James was extremely thankful for this additional income he was going to receive from the turn of the screw. Edward White Benson, the Archbishop of Canterbury, actually planted the seed that inspired James to write the turn of the screw. One afternoon in January 1895, James and his acquaintances were gathered around the fire at the country house of Benson. While discussing how ghost stories had diminished in both quality and quantity, the esteemed church leader recounted a worthy one that a woman had told him years before. The story James later wrote in his journal involved, quote, wicked and depraved servants who, quote, corrupt and deprave the children in their charge and come back to haunt them after dying under mysterious circumstances. 
James also jotted down that the story should be told, quote, by an outside spectator. Not only does the story itself follow the basic plot of The Turn of the Screw, but James's own fireside experience mirrors the opening frame of his novella, in which a man tells a ghost story that he first heard from a woman. At this point in his life, James's health was declining, and several of his friends and family had died, including his sister Alice and author Robert Louis Stevenson. In a letter from October 1895, James wrote, quote, I see ghosts everywhere. His brother, William, was an active researcher of the supernatural, which could have also influenced James in devising the turn of the screw. When the turn of the screw was released, James didn't originally hold it in much esteem. In fact, he referred to it as, quote, the most abject, down-on-all-fours, pot-boiler, pure and simple, that a proud man brought low ever perpetrated. He used the word pot-boiler multiple times in his correspondences when he mentioned the turn of the screw. Pot-boiler is a derogatory term for art or literature created solely for money. In a letter from December 1898, James wrote that the turn of the screw was, quote, a very mechanical matter, an inferior, a merely pictorial subject, and rather a shameless pot boiler. He wrote to H.G. Wells, quote, I could easily say worse of the turn of the screw than the worst anyone else could manage. The thing is essentially a pot boiler. So I think we get his feelings on the turn of the screw. It was a pot boiler to James. Despite his slights, though, however, uh, the turn of the screw proved quite popular among readers and reviewers alike. The New York Tribune dubbed it, quote, one of the most thrilling stories we have ever read. And the American Monthly Review of Reviews described it as, quote, a beautiful pearl Something perfect, rounded, calm, unforgettable. I don't know that I would essentially call it calm, but moving on, the Independent called it, quote, the most hopelessly evil story that we could have ever read in any literature. I love that one. The New York Times Saturday Review of Books and Art claimed it was worthy of being compared to Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. English author Virginia Woolf wrote, quote, The horror of the story comes from the force with which it makes us realize the power that our minds possess for such excursions into the darkness. When certain lights sink or certain barriers are lowered, the ghosts of the mind, untraced desires, indistinct intimations are seen to be a large company. James himself eventually came around on the story and began pontificating about writing it. Quote, Indeed, if the artistic value of such an experiment be measured by the intellectual echoes it may again, long after set in motion, the case would make in favor of this little firm fantasy, which I seem to see draw behind it a train of associations. I ought doubtlessly to blush for this for thus confessing them 
so numerous that I can but pick among them for reference. Little, uh, little high-minded of himself and kind of a, a turn from how he originally was bashing the turn of the screw as a pot boiler. While the success of the turn of the screw may have contributed to James's newfound fondness, it's also likely that he was much happier with the 1908 version of the tale. It wasn't published piecemeal like the original serial form, and James was able to make numerous changes to the text. These alterations don't really impact the story, but it's clear that James carefully tinkered with each sentence to find what he considered to be the perfect word or phrase. For example, Flora's, quote, furious wail goes from being, quote, produced to instead being, quote, launched. I'm going to take a short break here, but when Book Blurbs returns, I'll give my thoughts and rating for The Turn of the Screw. Is it really a story about ghosts? Or is the narrator unreliable and losing her mind? Stay tuned. Welcome back to Book Blurbs, everyone. In this episode, I'm discussing The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, first published in 1898. As mentioned before the break, James begins the turn of the screw with an unnamed narrator amongst friends gathered around a fire on Christmas Eve. One of them, Douglas, reads a manuscript written by his sister's now-deceased governess, or private tutor who lives in residence. This is the first and last time we hear from Douglas and his friends. James does not return to this group to conclude his story. Instead, after introducing this framing device, the aforementioned governess takes over as the story's first-person narrator. The governess is 20 years old and is the daughter of a poor country parson. She's something of a romantic, as we see when she meets her employer, the uncle who has become responsible for his young niece and nephew after their parents died. This is how he is described. Quote, this prospective patron proved a gentleman, a bachelor in the prime of life, such a figure as had never risen, save in a dream or an old novel, before a fluttered, anxious girl out of a Hampshire vicarage. One could easily fix this type. It never happily dies out. He was handsome and bold and pleasant, offhand and gay and kind. He struck her inevitably as gallant and splendid. But what took her most of all and gave her the courage she afterwards showed was that he put the whole thing to her as a kind of favor, an obligation he should gratefully incur. She conceived him as rich, but as fearfully extravagant. She saw him in a glow of high fashion, of good looks, of expensive habits, of charming ways with women. It sounds like it's no mystery why the governess spends the rest of the story secretly in love, or perhaps in lust, with him. He wants nothing to do with his niece and nephew and gives the governess full charge of raising them under one condition, 
She is never to contact him or bother him in any way when she begins her job at Bly Manor. Flora, the niece, is the younger of the two children in the governess's charge at eight years old. She lives at Bly Manor with Mrs. Gross, the housekeeper who has been in the service of the family for a long time. Miles, the nephew, is 10 years old and has just been expelled from boarding school. Both children cast a spell on the governess just by their appearance. The governess says of Flora, for example, quote, but it was a comfort that there could be no uneasiness in a connection with anything so beatific as the radiant image of my little girl, the vision of whose angelic beauty had probably more than anything else to do with me restless that before morning made me several times rise and wander about my room to take in the whole picture and prospect. When she first meets Miles, the governess says, quote, He was incredibly beautiful, and Mrs. Gross had put her finger on it. Everything but a sort of passion of tenderness for him was swept away by his presence. What I then and there took him to my heart for was something divine that I have never found to the same degree in any child, his indescribable little air of knowing nothing in the world but love. It would have been impossible to carry a a bad name with a greater sweetness of innocence. And by the time I had got back to Bly with him, I remained merely bewildered, so far, that is, as I was not outraged by the sense of the horrible letter locked up in my room in a drawer. She continues on about Miles later, saying, quote, He made the whole charge absurd. My conclusion bloomed there with the real rose flush of his innocence. He was only too fine and fair for the little horrid, unclean school world, and he had paid a price for it. The governess later says of both children, quote, I used to speculate, but even this with a dim disconnectedness as to how the rough future, for all futures are rough, would handle them and might bruise them. They had the bloom of health and happiness, and yet, as if I had been in charge of a pair of little grandees, of princes of the blood, for whom everything to be right would have to be enclosed and protected, the only form that, in my fancy, the after years could take for them was that of a romantic, a really royal extension of the garden and the park. Nowhere is it more clear that the governess has fallen under the children's spell than this passage from the story. Quote, Of course I was under the spell, and the wonderful part is that even at the time I perfectly knew I was, but I gave myself up to it. It was an antidote to any pain, and I had more pains than one. I was in receipt in these days of disturbing letters from home, where things were not going well. But with my children, what things in the world mattered? That was the question I used to put to my scrappy retirements. I was dazzled by their loveliness. The governess is disturbed by Miles's expulsion from school and wonders that there is some horrible truth that worries her that she's going to discover in that issue. 
but she's so charmed by him that she does not want to question him about it. Although there are a handful of servants around Bly Manor with Miles, Flora, Mrs. Gross, and the governess, the governess begins to encounter an unfamiliar man and woman on the grounds. These two figures come and go as they please and never seem to be noticed by anyone else. This is especially alarming because Bly Manor is so isolated from the outside world. The only time the characters really interact with other people is when they go to church on Sundays. When the governess questions Mrs. Gross about the man and the woman, she learns that the man is likely Peter Quint, a now deceased former employee of Bly Manor, and the woman is probably Miss Jessel, the governess's late predecessor. Once Miles and Flora's uncle left them at Bly Manor, Quick, uh, Quint took quick control of the home and its inhabitants, according to Mrs. Gross. He seduced Miss Jessel and spent a lot of time alone with Miles. Miss Jessel seems to have a deep connection to Flora. The governess's sightings of Peter Quint and Miss Jessel increase and become more distressing as the story goes on, to the point where the governess fears for the safety of Miles and Flora. I'll try not to go any further into summarizing the story here because the best way to experience uh, the turn of the screw from this point on, I would say, is to go into it as blind as you can. But I will say one of the reasons why I love the turn of the screw has to be uh, this question that James makes his readers ponder. And it's why this story has remained such a mainstay in classic horror fiction the way it has. Are the ghosts at Bly Manor real? Or is the governess going crazy right before our eyes? Do the ghosts pose a danger to the children? Or is the governess the true threat here? James curates so many different themes in this novella. Society and class have a huge influence on how we understand the characters of the story. The governess, for example, comes from a poor family. Her assignment at Bly Manor allows her to escape and play at being wealthy. Quote, the scene had a greatness that made it different, that made it a different affair from my own scant home, and there immediately appeared at the door with a little girl in her hand, a civil person who dropped me as decent a curtsy as if I had been the mistress or a distinguished visitor. When the governess questions Mrs. Gross about the mysterious man she spots at Bly Manor, their conversation goes like this. She thought a minute. Was he a gentleman? I found I had no need to think. No. She gazed in deeper wonder. No. Then nobody about the place. Nobody from the village? Nobody. Nobody. I didn't tell you, but I made sure. She breathed a vague relief. This was, oddly, so much to the good. It only went, indeed, a little way. But if he isn't a gentleman, what is he? 
He's a horror. A horror? He's... God help me if I know what he is. Talk about social class restrictions, am I right? Apparently, if you aren't a gentleman in this world, then you're a horror. When Mrs. Gross tells the governess about Miss Jessel and Peter Quint's relationship, we hear the following. Come, there was something between them. There was everything. In spite of the difference? Oh, of their rank? Their condition? She brought it woefully out. She was a lady. I turned it over. I again saw. Yes, she was a lady. And he so dreadfully below, said Mrs. Gross. I felt it doubtless needed and pressed hard in such company on the placement of the servant on the scale, but there was nothing to prevent an acceptance of my own companion's own measure of my predecessor's abasement. There was a way to deal with that, and I dealt, the more readily for my full vision, on the evidence of our employer's late, clever, good-looking own man, impudent, assured, spoiled, depraved. The fellow was a hound. So there's this cross-class romantic relationship between Peter Quint and Miss Jessel going on, and it's one of the central disturbances of this story. We see the governess identifies in a way with Miss Jessel and is incredulous at her entanglement with Quint. Now, with this falling in the horror genre, there's obviously the theme of the supernatural, and boy, does James play it up in some parts. Quote, There had been a moment when I believed I recognized, faint and far, the cry of a child. There had been another when I found myself just consciously starting as the passage before my door of a light footstep. But these fancies were not marked enough to be not to be thrown off. And it is only in the light, or the gloom, I should rather say, of other and subsequent matters that they now come back to me. The sounds that the governess hears in the night are universally stereotypical sound effects of horror. Faint cry of a child in the distance? Check. The sound of footsteps down the hallway? Check. It's all here. Now, listen to what how James writes the governess's first encounter with Peter Quint. It was as if, while I took in what I did take in, all the rest of the scene had been stricken with death. I can hear again, as I write, the intense hush in which the sounds of evening dropped. The rooks stopped cawing in the golden sky, and the friendly hour lost, for the minute, all its voice. But there was no other change in nature, unless indeed it were a change that I saw with a stranger sharpness. The gold was still in the sky, the clearness in the air, and the man who looked at me over the battlements was as definite as a picture in a frame. That's how I thought, with extraordinary quickness, of each person that he might have been and that he was not. 
we were confronted across our distance quite long enough for me to ask myself with intensity who then he was and to feel as an effect of my inability to say a wonder that in a few instants and became more intense. So the silencing of the natural world here really emphasizes the unnatural quality of Peter Quint's presence. In another instance, James signals a change in atmosphere to announce the presence of the supernatural. Quote, it was the dead silence of our long gaze at such close quarters that gave the whole horror, huge as it was, its only note of the unnatural. If I had met a murderer in such a place and at such an hour, we still at least would have spoken. Something would have passed in life between us. If nothing had passed, one of us would have moved. The moment was so prolonged that it would have taken but little more to make me doubt if even I were in life. Now, in this next passage, passage, James releases the supernatural forces we have been encountering throughout the story. But at the same time, notice how he plants seeds of doubt in our mind over whether this supernatural event really is happening in real life or if it's just all in the mind of our narrator. Quote, Dear little Miles, dear little Miles, if you know, if you knew how I want to help you, it's only that it's nothing but that. And I'd rather die than give you a pain or do you a wrong. I'd rather die than hurt a hair of you, dear little Miles. Oh, I brought it out. And now even if I should go too far, I just want to help, help me save you. I just, sorry, I just want you to help me save you. But I knew in a moment after this that I had gone too far. The answer to my appeal was instantaneous, but it came back in the form of an extraordinary blast and a chill, a gust of frozen air, and a shake of the room as great as if, in the wind, in the wild wind, the casement had crashed in. The boy gave a loud, high shriek, which, lost in the rest of the shock of the sound, might have seemed indistinctly, though I was so close to him, a note of either jubilation or of terror. I jumped to my feet again and was conscious of the darkness, so for a moment we remained while I stared out about me and saw the drawn curtains were unstirred and the window tight. Why, the candle's out, I then cried. It was I who blew it out, dear, said Miles. One of the biggest themes of The Turn of the Screw is innocence. We read, of course, how the governess idolizes Miles and Flora as the most innocent beings on earth. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. But is that really true? And what about her? By the end of the story, I'm not convinced she's the same person we met at the beginning of this tale. In all honesty, I'm worried about leaving her alone with the kids. Just listen to this. Quote, both the children had a gentleness. It was their only fault, and it never made Miles a muff. That kept him, them 
how shall I express it, almost impersonal and certainly quite unpunishable. They were like those cherubs of the anecdote who had, morally at any rate, nothing to whack. The whole thing about the cherubs with nothing to whack refers to a famous story related by author Charles Lamb, who lamented the fact that a former teacher who was uh, known to employ corporal punishment would have no students' bottoms to whip in heaven since angels were frequently pictured as winged baby heads with no bodies. Weird. The governess just screams sexual repression at different points in this story, and she is so desperate for male approval. There's also this uncomfortable passage. Quote, While this was done, Miles stood again with his hands in his little pockets and his back to me, stood and looked out of the wide window through which, that other day, I had seen what pulled me up. We continued silent while the maid was with us. As silent, it whimsically occurred to me, as some young couple who, on their wedding journey at the inn, feel shy in the presence of the waiter. He turned round only when the waiter had left us. Well... So we're alone. Ew. Why is the governess thinking about bridal imagery in this situation with her 10-year-old ward? Just, ew. Not to mention that the text makes me question the governess's moral character. Quote, He knew me as well as I knew him, and so in that cold, faint twilight, with a glimmer in the high glass and another on the polish of the oak stair below. We faced each other in our common intensity. He was absolutely, on this occasion, a living, detestable, dangerous presence. But that was not the wonder of wonders. I reserve this distinction for quite another circumstance, the circumstance that dread had unmistakably quitted me and there was nothing in me there that didn't meet and measure him. So the governess has encountered Quint, and we read here that the governess and Quint are equally matched in this struggle between, quote, good and evil, as it's framed here. And that equality is rather concerning to me. She also mirrors the actions of the dreadful Miss Jessel in a key scene later in the story. I'll leave you with this passage as the final insight into the governess, our narrator. You can think of this as her mission statement. Quote, I was there to protect and defend the little creatures in the world, the most bereaved and the most lovable, the appeal of whose helplessness had suddenly become only too explicit, a deep, constant ache of one's own committed heart. We were cut off, really, together. We were united in our danger. They had nothing but me, and I, well, I had them. It was, in short, a magnificent chance. This chance presented itself to me in an image richly material, I was a screen. I was to stand before them. The more I saw, the less they would.
Now let's get right into my rating of the turn of the screw. As you may recall, my scale from best to worst goes from bookshelf worthy to buy to library to spark notes and finally to pass. I've thought about it a lot and I'm going to give the turn of the screw the rating of buy. With this being a novella, it shouldn't cost you too much, and oftentimes you'll find it included as a collection of Henry James's other stories. I've continued thinking about this story long after I put it down and finished it, especially with the abrupt ending of the story, but James's writing style for me personally kept it from climbing up to another higher level. However, I appreciate how James's language turns this story into a detective exercise for his readers as they attempt to crack the curious case of Bly Manor. If I could only choose one story to read out of The Turn of the Screw or The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, the two great novels of the supernatural, according to Stephen King, if you'll recall, it wouldn't even be close. I would pick The Haunting of Hill House no contest. The Haunting of Hill House terrified me as I was reading it, to the point of making me paranoid at the smallest of sounds as I was lying in bed reading it at night. While the turn of the screw was disturbing, it was scary. It wasn't scary like The Haunting of Hill House. You know, it was more maybe atmospheric and the characters creeped me out. But the Haunting of Hill House just really gripped me and rocked me to my core. Plus, Jackson's writing is so much more digestible and thrilling to read. Granted, she was writing in the 20th century compared to James in the late 19th century. Still, I think most readers will find The Haunting of Hill House more approachable and if you can only choose one of these two fantastic ghost stories this Halloween, The Haunting of Hill House will give you more scares and frights for your buck than The Turn of the Screw, in my opinion. Coincidentally, Mike Flanagan has adapted both stories into original shows on Netflix. Now, I'm a baby when it comes to horror shows or movies, but I loved The Haunting of Hill House. It is masterful, especially with what it does in one of the episodes in particular. I wanted to read The Turn of the Screw before I watched The Haunting of Bly Manor, so now there's nothing holding me back from watching the show through my fingers, covering my eyes and my entire body bracing for jump scares or ghosts hidden in the background of shots. <sighs> Wish me luck. Thank you for listening to this episode of Book Blurbs. What do you think? Is the governess insane? Or were there really ghosts haunting Bly Manor? Let me know. I invite you to jump onto social media and follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter at BookBlurbs19. You can also send an email to BookBlurbs19 at gmail.com. And you can record a voice message at www.anchor.fm slash bookblurbs. 
After my first reading, I'm inclined to lean more towards the governess losing her mind. Although I have to say that those kids are beyond creepy. Please do me a favor and leave a rating for book blurbs on whichever podcasting platform you're using to help grow the podcast. With this being spooky season, I'm hoping this is the first of a good handful of episodes about classic horror fiction that I'll release in October, so stay tuned for that. I'm your host, Kenneth, and I'll catch you on the next episode of Book Blurbs.